Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Have you settled into summer? Somewhat. It's sure good to be here. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad summer is here, and I'm glad I'm here too. But uh, next week, actually, I won't be here next Sunday. I'll be on my first mission trip of the summer. The youth will start. The youth, uh, middle school youth, leave Saturday for our first mission trip to Butler, Pennsylvania. And uh, I, I actually was in Butler this weekend, got back at 10.30 last night, dropping off my daughter, who is doing a 10-month-long gap year program there in Butler, working with the ministry. So blessed to be there, blessed to have her there. Um, but pray for our youth this summer as they're going off. We've got uh, four different trips headed out. So pray for those. Remember to pray for our youth. Um, our speaker for this morning is coming on out here. He's been with us before, Ryan Kohlinger. We're going to pray for him. Ryan was actually in my DG way back when. Actually, same age as my son, that they were buddies in high school and uh, was in a DG with my son and Ryan and about five other guys and uh, just a, and we went to Butler. Yeah, we did all that stuff. But uh, good to have Ryan with us. I got to hear him for the first time last, the last time he preached. He's been here a couple of times before, but uh, let's pray for him as he brings the word this morning. Father, thank you for the chance to open up your word today. We thank you for Ryan coming to share with us, and we pray that you'd bless him. Just give him the words that you want him to say. Speak to our hearts as we listen. Work by your spirit to encourage us, to teach us, to exhort us. We ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Pastor Chuck. Good morning. As uh, Pastor Chuck introduced, uh, my name is Ryan Kohlinger. Uh, I have the honor of bringing God's word to you this morning. And for those of you who are new, uh, like he mentioned, I grew up here, um, left the church for college in 2012, I have a deep love for the people here, and I'm thrilled to be back after my time in seminary and in the midst of my work with churches in Indiana to bring God's word to you. And before I dive into our text today, I want to share a little story from my life to help both catch you up to where I am today and to introduce our passage, passage this morning. So in December of 2019, if you might have remembered from my other two sermons, um, I lost my job. And COVID was starting to hit the world. I can remember when the first reported case showed up in Indianapolis, which was where I was living at the time. I was out of work, and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. I was in the middle of seminary, but still needed to provide for my family. My wife, Jordan, was also looking for a job at the time. And less than a month after losing my job, Jordan handed me a white stick with two pink lines on it. And I can tell by your laughter that you already know what that means. We were pregnant. That was not planned. And I remember standing in my bedroom, calling a member of our small group at church in tears, 
because I didn't know what to do next. From my perspective, everything was out of control. And there was not much hope of anything getting any better anytime soon. My human perspective could not wrap its head around this situation. Fortunately, God had a different perspective. So today, we're going to be closing this three-part series in Job that I started 364 days ago. I came back in April for part two, and now we're closing with part three. So let me take a moment to review where we've been so far in the story and what we've learned. So the story of Job, if you remember with me, it's actually a court case. Satan stands before God and puts on trial God's policy of blessing the righteous. Satan argues that if God consistently blesses the righteous, then people will only follow God because of the rewards that they can get, not because they love God or because they love righteousness in of itself. And God then allows Satan to put this accusation to the test with using Job as exhibit A, if you will, in this court case. Job was a righteous man whom God had blessed abundantly. There was no one as righteous as Job in the land. And Satan proceeds to destroy everything Job has. His wealth, his children, and even his own health. Job's friends show up, as good friends do, and try to help Job figure out why this has happened to him and what he can do about it. Job's friends believe in the retribution principle, which we talked about last time, that if you do good, you are blessed. If you do evil, then you're punished. To fix the situation, Job merely has to repent of some known or unknown sin that God, and then God will bless him again. Easy peasy. And Job's three friends are proving what Satan is trying to say, that people should, are only doing good because of the earthly rewards that they can get from it. And Job refuses to repent of this known or unknown sin, and he vehemently defends his righteousness. And he starts to question whether or not God is truly a just God. And then we talked about how a fourth friend entered the scene, Elihu, and he had a different argument. He believes that Job's defense of his righteousness will eventually result in Job becoming a sinfully proud man. Therefore, God is disciplining him to save him from the path that he is headed down from future sin. And this is where we left our story last time. So now that we've reviewed the story, let's review the things that we've learned uh, along the way. First, we saw the dangers of being ethical mercenaries, people who do good just for the earthly rewards that it brings. We grappled with the question, are we following God because of what we can get out of the relationship or do we follow God because we love him? Second, we saw that God grows us in our faith and gives us the faith we need to endure the trials that life throws at us. We learned that God does not leave us to fend for ourselves, nor does he give us more than we can handle. And then third, we saw how our theology or our understanding of God and who God is dictates how we perceive and interpret the events of our lives. Job and his friends each had a different understanding of who God was, and this impacted how they responded to Job's situation. The three friends, the first three, saw God as a divine vending machine. You put in the, push the right buttons, do the right things, and you get the right response back from God. Elihu saw God as a correcting and loving father. And Job saw God as unloving, unconcerned, and unjust. Or at least he was thinking that. And now we're ready to finish the story. So we've addressed the different arguments 
of Job and his friends in April. And today we're going to be looking at Job chapter 38 through 42. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, you can go ahead. But I want to skip to the very end of the story in Job 42 to finish off our discussion of Job's friends before we go back to chapter 38. So why am I doing this? Well, we left off our time in April with an unanswered question that you may have been asking. So who, who got it right, right? Did Job get it right? Is, is God unjust and unloving and uncaring? Did, did his three friends get it right and God is a, is a vending machine? Or was Elihu right in what's going on in Job's situation? So we're going to skip to chapter 42, and we're going to see how a, a partial answer to this question that God gives. So starting in verses 7 through 9 of Job 42. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, one of the three friends, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. We are shown here that the first three friends did indeed get it wrong. They were wrong to treat the retribution principle as a law, and God is against ethical mercenaries. What about Elihu? He isn't mentioned in chapter 42. We never find out if God is pleased with Elihu's response. However, I think we can safely assume that Elihu's response was not completely wrong or he would have been included in God's indictment. So now the question becomes, did Elihu get the right answer? Later on, we're going to discover what the right answer actually is to what's going on in Job's situation. So I don't want to spoil anything, but I will say now that Elihu does portray God's character accurately. And we should indeed remember that God is a father who disciplines his children at times out of love. Before we get to Job and whether or not he is right, let's take a look at this cosmic courtroom scene that we've set up. Remember, this whole story is a court case that was started by Satan. Satan is the accuser. He's one plaintiff with the accusation that it is not good for God to bless righteous people because then people will obey God for selfish gain. And what is standing trial is God's policy of blessing the righteous. However, over the course of these chapters, you may have missed the subtle introduction of another different court case. So skip all the way back with me to Job chapter 13, and we're going to see the introduction of this second court case. Job 13, starting in verse 18. This is Job speaking. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. Only grant me two things, then I will not hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand from me, talking to God here, and let not dread of you terrify me. Then call, and I will answer, or let me speak, and you reply to me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Job is the second plaintiff that has arisen in this section. He enters the scene with the accusation that it is unjust for God to allow righteous people to suffer. So 
So over the course of the story, God has been put in between a rock and a hard place, right? So on the one hand, he's got Satan. And if Job does not respond well to the suffering that God has put him through, then Satan wins this court case against God. And then on the other hand, God or Satan or Job has introduced a second case. And if God does not give a good response to Job and his accusations of whether or not God is loving and just, then he loses this court case. So God's got this really narrow space that he has to work in. So let's look first at Job's response and see if God loses this first case against Satan. Right? So there are two responses that would result in God losing. The first one is that if Job chooses to curse God and die, like his wife told him to do in Job chapter 2, verse 9. If he did that, he would be declaring that God is not just, meaning that only the rewards are worth living for. Or two, God loses if Job listens to his friends and repents of some unknown sin, again, indicating that only the rewards are worth living for. So we saw that God wins the court case brought by the accuser because Job refuses to curse God and die, and he refuses to repent of some sin. Job's response shows that he obeys God, not for the rewards, but for who God is. And now God has to address the second plaintiff, Job, who is claiming that God is not truly just. So what does God do? And this is where the fourth section of our book comes in in chapters 38 through 41. So if you remember with me, the first section was the prologue. The second section was his cycle of conversations with his friends. The third section was Elihu coming onto the scene with his argument. And now we're into the fourth section. So we're going to start in Job chapter 38. Verses one through three. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. So pause right there. God visits Job in a whirlwind to question Job's knowledge and wisdom. That's pretty terrifying. So let's continue with verses four through 11 and see if it gets any better. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set doors and bars in place, and said, this far you shall come and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Wow, God really lets Job have it. And God continues to let Job have it for two more chapters. And God is changing the playing field here. Before, we had three components of a theodicy, if you remember what we talked about last time. The theodicy is an explanation of why things are they are in the, way, in the world in relation to God and his character. So we had three components to this theodicy going on in Job's life. We have the component that God is just, Job is righteous, and the retribution principle is at work. God doesn't defend any particular premise of or deny any one of the others, like Job and his friends all did. He doesn't defend his justice and claim that the retribution principle isn't true. Instead, he adds a fourth premise to the theodicy that has been missing so far. And here it is. God is wise. This fourth premise helps redefine both his justice 
and the retribution principle. This is what God is saying. In order for God's justice and how he runs the world to be assessed, someone must have all the information that is involved in God's creating and running of the world. Let me say that one more time. In order for God's justice and how he runs the world to be assessed, someone must have all the information that is involved in God's creating and running of the world. And this is what God does in these two chapters. He gives Job a taste of what is involved in creating and running the world. And this is God's point. The only way we as humans can make a statement about whether or not God is just is if we have all the information that God has, which we don't. And this is where God answers Job's complaint that God is not truly just with an earth-shattering truth that we can learn from. The issue of suffering is better answered in the realm of God's wisdom, not in the realm of his justice. Say that one more time. The issue of suffering is better answered in the realm of God's wisdom, not in the realm of God's justice. God spends these two chapters questioning Job. God's initial speech in Job 38, 1 through 39, 20 deals with God's wisdom and maintaining order in the cosmos. The questions God asks of Job identify all the things that Job is incapable of doing that God does on a regular basis. God has created the natural world and he maintains it day by day. God administers the world in wisdom and from his sovereign wisdom, justice results. We are lacking sufficient information to be able to affirm that God's justice is being carried out day by day because we are not omnipotent. What we need to come to grips with is whether or not we believe that God is wise. If we believe that God is wise, then there is good reason for us to believe that God is just. When we face suffering, we must try to make sense of it through the realm of God's wisdom instead of the realm of God's justice. We must believe that God is wise and that he has good reasons for allowing what he does. When things were out of control in the spring of 2020, I had to trust God's wisdom. And I see the same concept played out with my son almost every day. So my son, a little less than two years old, loves to play. He and I have a great time rolling around, uh, having all sorts of a blast together, playing with his toys, um, exploring. That's his number one thing he loves to do is just explore, explore, explore. Drives his mother crazy. And he is still at an age where he requires a nap in the middle of the day. And it is my job or my wife's job to take him in the midst of his fun and enjoyment and playing and doing all this stuff and to take him upstairs and put him down for a nap. Now, from his perspective, this is horrible, right? He hates naps. You're taking me away from having all this fun and playing and hanging out with mom and dad. Why would you do this to me, right? And he didn't do anything wrong. This is unjust in his eyes, right? I didn't disobey you. I didn't do whatever. Why would you do this horrible thing and put me down for a nap? He's so limited. But what he has to do and grow to learn to do is to trust the wisdom of my wife and I. And our wisdom tells us that if he gets a nap, he's going to have way more fun in the afternoon because he'll be well well rested. And it's going to help protect him from disease and sickness because he'll get some good rest. And this is a good thing for him. He has to trust that I have good reasons for what I'm doing, even though it doesn't seem just to him and his perspective. And it's the same with us and God. 
We do not have the knowledge that God has. We do not know everything that is involved in running the world. And when things seem unjust, what is your response to God? Are you angry, accusatory, or bitter? Or do you stop and ask God to give you faith to trust his wisdom? But Ryan, you may be saying, how can I know whether or not God truly is wise? Right here. God has given us story after story after story in his scriptures of how he has shown himself to be wise. I'll give you another practical way to gather more information on the wisdom of God. Turn and look at your neighbor and say to them, there are stories in your life that you need to share with me about God's wisdom. Now, awkwardly awkwardly turn to the other person sitting next to you that you avoided the first time around and say, there are stories you need to share with me about God's wisdom. This is one of the reasons that the church exists. We don't just gather here so we can listen to some cool music and nod off for a mid-morning nap while this dude talks on forever. We gather together on Sunday mornings and throughout the week so we can share life together. Each and every one of you has stories of how God took difficult circumstances in your life and made something beautiful out of it. This is a two-step process. First, you have to get involved in the life of the church. And second, you have to open yourself up to others and start asking deep questions of one another. We've got to move beyond that, how them Detroit Tigers doing, and move into the deeper stuff. So we must remind ourselves that God is a God of wisdom that far exceeds our own. And when difficulties in life come, we will, will we blame a lack of God's justice or will we remember to trust God's wisdom? Now, I'm not saying that life isn't going to be hard. And there are going to be many struggles that we will face and that will be hard for us to understand. Our first response is usually to try to process these events through the lens of justice. My challenge to you is to process these not first by trying to understand God's justice, but rather by trying to understand God's wisdom. Now that we've looked at chapters 38 and 39, let's take a look at chapters 40 and 41. Starting in verse 6 of chapter 40. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I will also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. God's response in Job chapters 40 and 41 is to issue Job a further challenge. He's challenging Job's ability to respond to the great threats of the world. God begins by challenging Job to deal with threats to justice in the form of the wicked of the world. That's what we just read here in verses 6 through 14. And then at the end of chapter 40 and the beginning of chapter 41, 
God describes great beasts, the behemoth and the Leviathan, challenging Job to prove himself mightier than these ferocious creatures. And Job is coming face to face with the frailty and weakness of man in this conversation. You see, God is far beyond us and our capabilities. He stands outside of time and we can only grasp at him with a finite mind. And this is bringing us to our second point this morning. God is great and you are not. Let me say that just in case you missed that. God is great and you are not. God is highlighting the limitations and naivete of humankind. We are not as great, wise, and powerful as we are tempted to think we are. God and his power are so far beyond our ability to comprehend. And this was Job's problem. He forgot how big God is compared to himself. One way that I keep reminding myself of this concept is to remember the analogy of children. You see, children are young and inexperienced, and they lack the wisdom that you and I have from our experiences in the world, just like I talked about with my son in nap time. A child thinks they know what is right for them, but oftentimes they don't. And we have to constantly teach them to understand certain aspects of life. We have to teach them that being mean to others will make it harder for them to make friends. We have to teach them that eating a mountain of candy is going to make them sick to their stomachs. We have to teach them that chores are important. You can't just do whatever you want all day long when you're an adult. In fact, we can laugh at some of the things that children do that are so naive and dumb to us as adults. Like the three-year-old boy who woke up his mom one morning with the kind act of repeatedly poking her in the eye. And when she finally got over what was you know, out of her sleep and what's going on and got him, like, what, what are you doing? Why are you poking me in the eye? That hurts. And he looked at her and he smiled and he said, I want you to be a pirate. You laugh, but that's exactly what it is with God in us. Are you tempted to think of yourself as an adult in God's eyes? All throughout scripture, what are we called? Children, children, my beloved children. Here's a simple test to help you answer that question of whether or not you think you may be an adult in God's eyes. When you feel you've been treated unjustly, what is your first response? Do you immediately become angry and despondent? When you have those reactions, you are demonstrating that you think you know everything going on related to the situation, the past and the future, all everything that's related to this. You know so much, in fact, that you know exactly how things are supposed to go and the ways that you should be treated. You know who gets immediately angry or despondent when things don't go his way? My almost two-year-old son. Does he have the full context for almost all of the situations that seem unjust to him? Nope. Well, how would you have us respond, you may be asking. Well, I challenge you to make your first response to injustice to ask yourself, what might God be trying to do in this situation? What might he be trying to teach me? And that's the response of someone who is on track to being a spiritual adult. Here's another simple test to tell if you think you're an adult in God's eyes. Can you be wrong about a non-essential element of theology? Are your views on the best Bible translation, the use of alcohol, the mode of baptism, prevalence of spiritual gifts today, free will versus predestination, or the end times unchangeable? Do you see yourself as wise and knowing so much that you can have a monopoly on theology or truth? 
I find that as we spend more and more time in the church and as our years as Christians increase, we are tempted to believe that we have all the right answers when it comes to theology. Now, granted, there are parts of theology that are very clear that we should hold very dear, and we would call these the fundamentals of the faith. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those parts of theology that aren't as clear. You can have very smart people and very wise people on the opposite sides of the same issue. And we should definitely search scriptures in order to form our own beliefs and about these parts of theology. But the danger comes when we claim that our understanding is the only right understanding on these non-essential issues. Friend, do not be like Job at the beginning of the book. Do not let your personal theology or your own understanding of events overshadow how God may be trying to reveal new things about himself to you or what he might be trying to do in your life. So how should we react? Well, I've already talked about asking yourself what God may be trying to accomplish in the midst of the difficulty in your own life or in other people's lives. But we see another appropriate response when we read Job's reaction to being confronted by God in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He starts quoting here, God here. He says, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And then he says, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, the things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then he quotes God again and says, here, and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. And Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is how we should respond when we are confronted with God's greatness and our frailty. We should respond with humility and repentance. We must remember that we are not God. If you're anything like me, you try to take God's place in your own life every single day. I think I know what's best for me. And I think I know exactly how my life should go. But we have to die to our pride and our arrogance. We must be reminded that God is far greater than our limited minds can handle. We are not God, and our little kingdoms pale in comparison to his kingdom and his greatness. Now let's look at the fifth and the final section of the book in the epilogue found in Job chapter 42. God wins both court cases, and in chapter 42, he shows his renewed commitment to his policy of blessing the righteous by again reaping blessings upon Job. Job is wealthier than he was before and is blessed with many more sons and daughters. Why isn't God great? However, there's something peculiar going on here about this ending. Where's the part where God tells Job what's going on? Where's the part where God explains why he allowed these things to happen to Job? It's not there. This ending does not focus on God's justice by explaining the cause of Job's suffering. Instead, the focus is on God's wisdom. Sometimes we can be tempted to demand an explanation from God. We most certainly can ask God to explain the things that happen to us, but this can't be a demand. Instead, what is demanded of us is to trust in God's wisdom. The ending shows that we need only to understand that God in his wisdom has a purpose for everything that he does. This ending tells us not to be fixated on our past, our suffering, but to gaze into the future, the purpose God may have for what he is doing. 
Say that one more time. This ending tells us not to be fixated on our past, our sufferings, but to gaze into the future, the purpose God may have for what he is doing. The story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot illustrates this well. Jim, Elliot, and four other missionaries reached out to the Haurani Indians in Ecuador. They were slaughtered by local warriors when they tried to reach out to share the gospel. Elizabeth Elliot was left a widow. But she and her other missionary friends, including some of the wives of the slain, other slain men, continued to work to evangelize this people to the point that some of those involved in the killings of their husbands are now Christians to this day. Jim Elliot's death was also the spark that ignited many people to become missionaries themselves. And Elizabeth Elliot is a well-known writer and speaker who have inspired many to this day. Did Jim Elliot ever see the fruit that he was hoping for? No. Elizabeth Elliot could have chosen to let her past, her sufferings, consume her. Instead, she chose to gaze into the future to see what God may be trying to do. And then she joined him in that work. So let me ask you, do you fixate on your past, your sufferings, or do you gaze into the future to see what purpose God may have for what he is doing? Looking to the greater purpose is exactly what Jesus tells us to do in the New Testament. Turn with me to the gospel according to John chapter nine, and we're gonna see this played out in Jesus' ministry. John chapter nine, starting in verse one. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. In John 9, when the disciples raised the question about the man being born blind, Jesus turns their attention from cause to purpose. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that God might, God's work might be displayed in his life. Job's friends had considered suffering to be punitive, Elihu had considered it disciplinary. Jesus, following the lead of the book of Job, considers it sometimes beyond human explanation, yet capable of being turned to spiritual profit if it leads to knowledge of God and deepened fellowship with him. There's one example in the Bible that outshines every other example in showing how God's greatness and wisdom are above all. While praying with his disciples at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was arrested and betrayed by one of his closest followers. Jesus was whipped, beaten, condemned, and crucified on a cross. Jesus was the son of God, and he died hanging naked from a tree. Who would look at the story and think that this is the best thing to ever happen? The ultimate plan and the perfect fulfillment of God's wisdom. Yet three days later, 
Christ rises from the dead and tells us that this was all a part of God's plan so that mankind might be saved from their sins. The greatness and wisdom of God is far beyond us. Will you submit yourself to it? If you haven't submitted yourself to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I urge you to accept this call to salvation. Reach out to somebody who brought you this morning, a friend, family member, or there'll be some of us up here at the end of the service. We'd love to talk to you more about what this means. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as weak, frail, and naive human beings. Help us to see your greatness. Help us to trust in your wisdom. Help us to respond to our shortcomings with humility and repentance. When we face difficulties and suffering, help us to not fixate on the past, but look for how you are moving and working. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.